Hi, I'm Telly Mahoney, and welcome to The Good Room, where we have interdisciplinary conversations about what makes a room good. Today, we're talking about airports and a good gateway, and I'm excited to welcome Matt Leach, who is part of the design leadership for the Austin Airport Expansion, and Wendy Dunham-Tita, the commercial mixed-use market leader at PAGE. So we're chatting about how airport checkpoints, interiors, and commercial building lobbies can intersect and inform each other. Matt, can you start us off by talking about the Austin Airport Checkpoint 1? The opportunity for this project was to expand the airport's ability to better accommodate the group of people that were going through this building. And the security needs had changed post 9-11, and they wanted to make sure that they not only improved the throughput, but did it in a way that was a reflection of the values of this place. And that, you know, Austin is a very laid back kind of place where where really people are comfortable in their skin. And I think the idea of how do you do something that is very rote and in a way procedural is something that can be thought of as a, a humanizing process and to make people comfortable and to set them up to have a very pleasant experience. And we we tried to figure out what that would mean. And Austin's a really interesting place because it was settled between Waller and Shoal Creek along the river. And that was a function of it lying between arable land and the hill country and, and really the edge of the frontier. Austin was a frontier town. And this place wouldn't exist without that geography. And the way that one moved about the the frontier was by the ground, but really was about understanding what was happening against the sky. You would look for cypress trees to understand where water was. And we were talking early on in the process about how do we take the idea of where we are in the world at this place in time and make it legible through the design. And that aspect of storytelling was one that this the original airport had taken on. There's a lot of art and architecture in the original airport design through the glyphs, through the uh, wrought iron handrails that Lars Stanley did, through some interesting terrazzo work. And so anywhere you look in the in the original airport, there was always an opportunity for you to connect at a personal level and say, what is this place? What does this mean for me? And we thought that we could do some of the same things and and really make it about who people are at this particular place and made it about the sky. And so this the opportunity was there was a part of the airport that was undeveloped between the ticketing counter and the concourse, like a little wedge. And we thought that we might do something that was about the sky. And so we we found a plan form that was not a resultant, was actually something that was imposed that could be universal, like the circular form that might be about the sky and being able to register the sun throughout. And I think what's so interesting about that space and maybe is somewhat different than a building lobby is that a building lobby is creating a relationship between wherever it's coming from, presumably the, the street, and if you will, and then what's happening inside. It can have a little bit of a stage set quality to it. It can. It can set tone. It can either bring the street with it into the building or it can bring what's happening in the building out to meet along that edge and help get the guest ready for whatever's happening inside. And that airport checkpoint has slightly different function in a way because it has so much work to do programmatically and people are only going through it in one direction because they're leaving. So it's this like departure kind of threshold moment, I guess, presumably getting people ready for the experience of, you know, everything that's happening in there. But 
even though it's quite busy, it has a little bit of a moment of calm in it, which I find different than a lot of other particular spaces that have the same program. So to me, just as I experience it, and I didn't have anything to do with the design, it's more like a moment of pause, I think, between things versus being a threshold sometimes. And these kinds of spaces, they have a publicness to them that other kinds of work that we do might not. And I think that that is something that I'm interested in is that how does the public transition between outside and inside and what is the role of that that room, if you will. And um, I think there are, are a lot of levers to pull on it in terms of how expansive or how dramatic or how much continuity. And, you know, there are certain periods of architecture where as a movement, that blending, that blurring of lines was definitely a priority. And then there are certain times where the expression of that is a real difference is a priority. I think where we are now is it's really more like what does the space on either side need that lobby to do? And I think that's what we spend a lot of time on. I tend to have a very similar perspective. Public architecture is very, very different than work that takes place in the private realm. And I think the best thing it can do is offer a sense of generosity by way of its publicness, right? Like it's about the constituency, it's about the culture, it's about the society that's a part of. And in a way, it's a reflection of of that that came before it, you know, the those things as a a physical expression of that. And that's true of all the great works of public architecture, that it, it's more than just a housing of function. It, it's a representation of that place. And I think with the airport, it's it absolutely does that in a lot of ways, even though it has a discrete form and you can kind of tell it's a container when you're in it. It's what Wendy described. It, it it's, it's expansive, it, generous in its views. It's generous in the way it's experienced and the lighting. And then its actual physical nature is is something that we determined was important, right? It's an 85-foot-tall volume. It doesn't have to be. Most checkpoints are kind of compact. And, you know, in contrast to something like commercial space, you are developing an idea about what an experience might be because of the activities that are taking place in there, like whether it's about, you know, having a cocktail or enjoying dinner with a group of friends and trying to facilitate a kind of conversation that takes place in that room. And still in an indoor-outdoor setting that we see all over Austin, the characteristics of that space are going to be quite a bit different than one that is inherently public because you actually might be going in the other direction, right? Like you might be trying to create an intimate setting that is still blended, is still this kind of amorphous, fluid condition, but it's not necessarily generous in its expression, even though in its experience it might be because we have a lot of choices about the variety of experiences one might have and that kind of setting of a, of a commercial lobby that has additional programs layered on top of it. Yeah, it's, you know, I think about what you just said in the sort of like there's a certain container of activity and it's maybe less open-ended. And I think about other roles of that sort of opposite, like a more open-ended kind of commercial experience. And I think about, there's a project we did called Fountain Place Residences in Dallas. And that lobby literally was about creating a relationship to the street that signified that something residential and inviting was happening inside. And so that lobby was almost like a stage set or it was a visual invitation, if you will, because there was nothing existed like that in that part of town. 
and people didn't think of this particular site for residential experiences. And there's an absolutely beautiful civic plaza and a really important, iconic Paycob Freed office building next door. And it was clear with the client that they really wanted to make sure that that lobby was a signifier that this was a residence and that people should feel that they will have a different kind of experience coming in. And so we actually really intentionally tried to share with the street and the sidewalk via the interior design what that experience was going to be like. And so in some ways, that lobby was an invitation to have a kind of experience. What were some of the design elements that helped create that welcoming sensation that somebody might get from the sidewalk? One of them was light. I think that was one of the really important elements and not just brightness, but actually the color and the tone of light. So there's a an enormous walnut wall that's lit with this kind of honey colored lighting. And so from the street, you're driving by and there's this very crisp green glass building coming down to meet the ground and all the remaining kind of bits of metal are dark charcoal gray. And so this one wall is just like this warm backdrop, like a wood curtain. And the other is a kind of backlit onyx bar. So it's very glowy and it really looks like a traditional kind of hotel bar in that it's very sparkly and it doesn't look like it's a private place. You know, it's it's lit in the way that it is inviting you to kind of come in and have more of a hospitality oriented experience. And then the third angle, because there are kind of three major views, is this kind of matte gold tile and a shapely kind of sculptural ceiling that, again, are playing with the contrast and have a bit more of a kind of theatrical quality to them. But the light on each of those moments was really important so that from dusk kind of onward into the evening in an area that might not also signify residential experiences or hospitality, that they were very visibly kind of in that realm. So I think light was incorporated how it interacted with certain materials. And then we also used this ceiling element that was sculptural, but also directional. And it really helped get you through the space, kind of told you where to go. And that also, I think, was an incredibly important element. Makes me think about ceilings and how important the checkpoint ceiling is. You mentioned it was 85 feet tall, Matt, but it also, it's a piece of art. It's a thing to look at. It's one of my favorite pieces at that space. Yeah. You know, early on, there was a sketch generated that this ceiling could be like a leaf. Again, trying to pick up on this idea that nature afforded this this opportunity. But it also, in a way, depending on how you looked at it, was a compass or an orienting device. And so there's a number of different readings that one can apply. And so this geometrically organized ceiling that is a central spine with radiating sort of ribs coming off of it, is unique to the span. It's actually an expression of the loads in that ceiling. But more than that, it just it looks like this remarkable form. And on top of that, we layered a, a full spectrum color gradient to say something again about how the sun moves through the sky. We knew that that wasn't going to be quite enough. Of course, we wanted a, a rather unique expression of the form and the functional criteria of this room. But we also, like you, thought about what the experience said about, I guess, the goals. And, and what I mean by that is we didn't know how critical light was going to be, but we knew that we wanted this to be a very soft kind of experience and that the lighting should be commensurately soft. 
And to support that root structure, there are very, very deep concentric structural columns that are at every rib that form a sunshade device all around the room. And so you have very, very low glare, very low direct solar gain. And the other thing we did was we made sure that none of the light fixtures in the room were directly visible. And so when you're in that room, like you said, it's a moment of pause. You know, It's like stepping into a courtyard before you go into somebody's front door. And I think that without that, it would have just been one more a kind of barrier between the transaction of getting your ticket and replacing your bags and then getting screened and then going to your gate. Like those are typically broken apart, right? They're not like a fluid experience. And this gives you an opportunity to maybe forget about that, the getting jostled about in the process. Talking about that reminds me of like how tactile that space is. And it's a little bit unusual for lobbies to have such a tactile quality because a lot of those spaces you're just, you're moving through and maybe your interaction is with the furniture and that's probably as intimate as it gets. But Unless you're a certain level of traveler, you have to take your shoes off and you have to actually experience some of those surfaces. And how much did y'all think about how cool that floor would feel and how important the aluminum was and the matte quality of that to someone's feet? Because it is remarkable. Well, we maybe talked about it in a slightly different way. That is definitely the resultant. And it's it's interesting because it's come up a couple of times, you know, standing on that floor, which is a, a, a matte aluminum tile that's actually a concrete pan. And but where we the, what predicated it was an understanding that that floor was going to be a high wearing floor and that maintaining it was going to show deterioration rather quickly, depending on the material. And so we thought that by starting with something that already had a, a level of imperfection, it would actually wear in. Right. It would actually have sort of like the qualities of a, a classical building that might have stone floors. And when you wear into them over time, they actually develop of remarkable quality that you can't buy. And so we were interested in how that might be a better solution than trying to replicate the terrazzo. And, and and it was because we had to have a raised floor, right? Like what is the best way to approach this? And so we didn't start with what the socks would feel like, but we certainly appreciated that it was a surprise. Have you read the book on weathering? It's, what is that? Mosta Mosasavi? Do you know that book? I know of it, but I've never had the privilege to read it. Oh, Tully, there's this remarkable book, and it's about just how materials weather and patina, and and people just don't talk about them as much on the interior, that notion that, like, as a material changes, if you think about it intentionally, then it can be a part of the design. And there's certainly so many examples of that on the outside, but I don't think people talk about them in the way that you were just describing them on the insides of spaces. Yeah, you know, it's the legacy of these types of buildings is is fundamental to the sort of legacy of the American city, right? Like cities as sort of the economic lifeblood of our country, people are coming and going throughout. And you can think about all the great transit hubs like Penn Station and subways and the TWA terminal in New York and the airports and putting this building in that context and also thinking about the era when some of those historic transit hubs were were made it sort of dovetails into this conversation because those are beloved spaces and they're beloved not because they're crowded or just because they're old, but because they're put together. And I think that we tried to think carefully about how the put togetherness of this room 
would also be fundamental to its experience. You know, it's actually kind of what you see is what you get. Like that ceiling we were just talking about, it's it's not really clad. The the things in between the structural bits are um, the structural deck. It's a cell deck and it happens to be acoustic. And we tried to make sure that that sort of essential quality could could carry that story because we knew that it wasn't something that was subject to change. But as it we wore into it, people became comfortable with it, it was something that would would hold up over time and, and would be a part of that long story without really knowing where we were headed um, in this in this airport that continues to change. But certainly thinking about it uh, at that point in time. You mentioned the floor design was not necessarily intended to give somebody that pleasurable feeling on their foot. But I'm thinking about this process of security where the equipment can sometimes feel clunky and travelers can often feel overwhelmed in this environment. Were there any elements of the design that you specifically curated to make that experience a little more humanizing? Well, I, pr- I might misquote this, but there is a famous quote in designing these types of spaces that you've got to make space for the cigarette machine or the phone booth. And I think when you think about a room that is so grand, it has the ability to deal with the clutter that's just associated with what you're dealing with procedurally. And if you can make those things go away, the person doesn't focus on it, right? It's like when you're a kid and you're getting a shot and they distract you for a minute. And we we did talk about that a lot. We wanted to make sure that the, the room was sufficiently distracting because we knew that the equipment was going to change over time. And we knew that the airport was going to bring in vendors and all those other things. And if you look at the original airport, it continues to figure out how to deal with those things. And not all of it's graceful, but surprisingly, it all still holds up to the original sort of diagram. And this and this room continues to do so as well. I have to think that the ceiling plays such an important part of that. You know, there are studies about the human brain and not just that we like taller spaces, but that height activates certain centers of the brain that allow for more expansive thinking. And I think that that is you know, really true in that one. Like you could be in a narrow space and your brain is shutting in and focusing on like the immediate tactile quality that may be pleasant or unpleasant. But like in that space, it would be really curious to see brain level activity in a confined checkpoint versus this really tall one. I saw there was a study in the Journal of Environmental Psychology that found people who were in spaces with a higher ceiling actually perceived it as more beautiful opposed to a space that had a lower ceiling. And I find that interesting because often design decisions are driven by the idea of beauty. But in in an airport design, of course, the security needs to be prioritized above all else. But I'm curious, Wendy, in a building lobby, how you might balance the conflicting ideas of beauty and aesthetics with security needs. One of the things that is great about giving a feeling of security is just being able to see things and just to have visibility, to be able to get your bearings wherever you are gives people a a higher level of security. And so thinking about the sequence of moving through space and being able to see where you're going, where you've come from is intuitively just good planning. But then there are times when you physically have to shut something off. And as much as possible, we really try and integrate that into the architecture and the interiors as much as possible. Fountain Place residences also had some needs for security. And we actually designed these gates that essentially are 
steel and brass mesh pieces of art that happen to have the ability to lock off a space at the end of the day. And so they're intentionally designed to be artful and tactile and beautiful so that even if you come up to them and you can't get on the other side, like it's a really nice moment and a thing to look at and touch and light passes through it and you can see what's beyond. So I think there are definitely things that we do as designers to help people have a sense a sense of security and then to make the security points as beautiful as we can. I hadn't thought of this till now, but it's interesting to imagine what an airport would be like if it if you didn't actually see the security components. And I don't know if it's good or bad, but the thing that's interesting about the thought exercise is like we did a state hospital and it was really, really important to the leadership that bringing somebody into the hospital was there was no barrier to actually getting somebody into the building because the success of their care depends on them not perceiving the building as a threat, which is kind of counterintuitive to security in an airport. Like in some ways you want the role of security to be imposing that it's a serious thing that's taking place and that in a way a deterrent. If the airport said, actually, this is, should be a thing that is secondary to everything else. It would be, I think it would be very different. Like you could see airports there, you could distribute it, right? Like you, it, instead of it being concentrated into a thing where there's a crowd and it's like, next, next, bring out your passport. It would just be this thing that you like, you get your coffee and like, Oh yeah, by the way, could you step through this? And it was this sort of automatic moment where you don't even know that you've just been scanned. And that serendipity of security is something that takes place when we're taking care of one another anyway. And I wonder what that would look like if it was integrated into more public spaces. Maybe we wouldn't worry about having to be delayed for three hours because we wouldn't even perceive it. It would just be like you're on this beautiful walk that happens to be this interior space. I don't know, but it's it's a funny thing to, to consider because um, it doesn't have to look like that, you know, but it would def- it would definitely transform the way we think about. Uh, not just airports, but all public spaces. I mean, this this conversation is taking place across the country in schools, and it's terrifying, right? I mean, nobody wants to send their kids to a place that looks like it's actually a military encampment. And I don't think most schools do, but this is this is what buildings say, and this is what our why the, the built environment is so important because it does have an impact on who we are and how we comport ourselves around one another. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think a lot of older airports were a little bit more permeable in that way because they you could just sort of drive up and walk on the plane. I mean, I think it goes back to that idea of can a building be an invitation? And if it's not, then to your point, it has to, you know, there are certain ones where really it's signifying that it's not an invitation unless you've, you know, met these requirements. And that's really uh, that must be such a tough, tough thing for educators and schools right now to sort of figure out, because I think there are people who don't want it to look like an invitation. And that's a hard thing to work through. It can be counterproductive, too, because if a building is defensive or aggressive in its appearance with respect to these things, sometimes it's an invitation, too. And yeah. Again, it's it's just what we say with our work. And so I, I appreciate how, in a way, invisible the those things are at that airport. And that room, it can be lined up all the way to the other side of the transaction lobby, and it never feels crowded. And it's it's remarkable. Like, those machines just go away. 
it, I, I wouldn't be surprised if in, you know, 10 years, we don't have to see so much of that because of all the other kind of sensing technology. And then we'll have a different discussion. The compartmentalization, I think it will remain the biggest challenge of, of that experience. But it would be amazing if there was something like you go through security and then you can go into a garden, right? Like you can just hang out in a courtyard and I don't smoke, but if there was a place to like just step outside and regather yourself, like that would be extraordinary. And if we could figure out how we get past that, where it could be a little bit more fluid, it might actually also help the people who run these kinds of places because they've got more choices about how they organize their spaces. Some of our new work on the west end of the airport tries to tackle these things expressly. There is an outdoor terrace that we've added, so that'll be really exciting. You can step out, not quite a courtyard, but at least a distraction, right? A removal from the hubbub inside. And then there's a chapel and a meditation room and some other things that will let you sort of unplug for a minute. I think giving people that choice is is really important. Do you think there's any elements of the building lobby that could be integrated into the airport checkpoint to help tackle these challenges? Some airports are the exception to this, of course, but from one end to the other, even if there are differences that are, you know, or uniquenesses to the phase with which the airport was built, there's a goal to sort of make it all sort of feel singular in its experience or its brand expression or whatever. Like you still know that you're in the Austin airport from one end to the other. That tends to be a goal. But the thing that's wonderful about lobbies that are commercialized is that you, on the same block, you can go from one place to another to another to another and have five or six different lobbies all within a very compact place and have very different experiences. So if, you know, even if I'm waiting for Wendy to come down and we're going to go get a meal, if I am decide that I actually want to hang out in the lobby next door, I have that choice and they might actually be interconnected with a door. There's nothing that says you couldn't take the same approach in designing uh, an airport, right? It might be something that actually is an expression of its development mm -hmm. over time. And in, in some ways, if it were more like a city, that might be remarkable like because it's inherently scalable. It, it's not necessarily bound by the diagram that it has to be complete, right? It's inherently mm -hmm. open. That's like kind of the wonderful thing about a city. And if you can think about how those things change over time and the different kinds of experiences they can afford – maybe a new type of airport emerges. Yeah, it's a collection of scales. When you were describing that, I was immediately thinking about the Indeed lobby and how your proximity to a historic building is so different than if you were, you know, on a stair looking through a curtain wall. And those are, in some ways, like if you were looking straight east and straight west, you would have very different kinds of city shaping experiences. And I, yeah, I, I don't know that we think about those lobbies as a collection of volumes of space because they're, they're oftentimes thought of as a singular volume of space with continuity. Although I will say a commonality in that particular lobby and, and others that, that we've done maybe has a bit to do with detail. And I think that if we're thinking about good rooms, that's something that is, is worth talking about, sort of how, what's the level of thought behind not just a space that could be a block long, for example, and half a block wide, you know, or whatever amount of scale, it's somewhat monumental, but what's the level of thought and intention that goes into, you know, an individual inch or six inches or 
what patterning is integrated into that, because these are spaces that, you know, the same person could come and go three times a day, every day of the year, potentially, you know, especially if it's a residential building lobby. But and so what's the level of of thought behind the amount of integrated detail and design yeah, it's it's a really interesting discussion about the opportunity of detail and one's experience of a place. And like I think you and I approach this at very different scales. I'm I'm not quite as interested in the resolution of detail at a fine level as I am interested in its ability to carry a level of fiction. And like a, a very normative way of thinking about this is that a detail is an expression of construction, right? Like how things come together and how artfully that's put together is usually what one thinks of when they think about detail. But like in the airport, for example, we were trying to carry this story of fiction that the room was about how light was shaped by its form. And the depth of those columns was on the one hand structural, but it was also about they were slightly exaggerated, right? So that they would actually be the the way the light would hit them would be a little bit more dramatic. That's not really about expressing the construction as much as it's about heightening the story about the way that the environmental characteristics are shaped by how this thing was put together and the decisions we made about how it was put together. And that's the kind of stuff that is fun for me is more like thinking about architecture like a movie, you know, like you think about. Uh, Star Wars or Harry Potter, like those are such different settings, but they could not, that story could not be told without a setting that is about the story. And I think about that all the time, you know, like we were talking about Indeed and that building is about the blobby being an extension of the public realm. And so it was really, really important that it kind of dissolve at the edges to be an extension of the of the street. And Having the opportunity to tell that story with a work, I think, is the thing that really gets me going. And, yeah. and then working with people like you who really, really care about, no, let's let's shape it slightly differently because it will be read as exceptional, right? Like as an extraordinary thing that somebody thought about that was done with care. I am so glad to have people around me that are a little bit more invested in that. It's really interesting to hear the different perspectives about detail. Thank you, Matt and Wendy, for joining me today on this episode of The Good Room. And thank you for listening.